Hello and welcome to Minter Dialogue, episode number 493. My name is Minter Dial and I'm your host for this podcast, a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. For more information or to check out other shows on this network, please visit evergreenpodcast.com. So this week's interview, I'm excited to bring you Alex Patakos. Alex is the founder of the Global Meaning Institute. He's a political scientist, philosopher, and best-selling author. He's written or co-written with Elaine Dundon, The Opa Way, Discovering Meaning Through the Lens of Work for the Journal of Constructive Psychology, and most recently, the third edition of Prisoners of Our Thoughts, Viktor Frankl's Principles for Discovering Meaning in Life and Work. In this conversation with Alex, we discuss his background, including as a U.S. Army veteran, his encounter with and the importance of Viktor Frankl, how and why we're in a crisis of meaning, the notion of free will, relationships, sense of humor, and much more. You'll find all the show notes on minterdial.com. And if you have a little moment, please do go over and drop in a rating and review. And certainly don't forget to subscribe to catch all the future episodes. Now for the show. Alex Patakos. Correct. Great to have you on the show. Thank you so much for for accepting to join me. You are the founder of the Global Meaning Institute, a political scientist, philosopher, best-selling author multiple times, and a U.S. Army veteran, which definitely stood out for me. In your own words, Alex, how would you like to describe yourself? Well, uh, because of the influence on my life, not just about my Greek heritage, but also I was very much influenced by a uh, world-renowned psychiatrist and philosopher by the name of Viktor Frankl. And so I'm really in many ways standing on his shoulders. Uh, but I've been given affectionately, uh, given my keynote speeches and consulting work, advising and mentoring, uh, the nickname Dr. Meaning. So in some respects, that's apropos. Uh, at the same time, I would like to look at myself in terms of not just standing on Dr. Frankel's shoulders, but also being able to see myself somewhat as a futurist and also somebody who is concerned about the future specifically of humanity. And so that's pretty well what's driven my life, even going back to when I was a young teenager. Mm. And it, it seems also to be the same with your partner, Elaine, who Elaine. wrote the book with you. I wanted to just ask you a couple of other things, which I was digging around in your background. So first of all, the U.S. Army veteran, thank you for your service. Thank you. Can you tell us about your experience in the in the Army? Yeah, well, uh, my experience, Chris, when I was in the military, it was many, many years ago, decades ago now. Uh, this was not a time when I <clears throat> when I came back to the, the States, the U.S., uh, people didn't thank you for your service. Um, being a Vietnam veteran, um, we were perceived, myself and obviously my brothers and sisters who served, those who did uh, were fortunate enough, like myself, uh, to be able to get a discharge. Many of them obviously never came home. Um, but we were looked at, you know, very negatively. And so I'm, I'm happy to see that the impressions and the, the, the perspective on military service has changed in a positive way for those who, who basically put their life on the line for their countries. 
Um, that doesn't mean that I'm not peace loving, um, but I also want to make sure that my service uh, was something that I respect and that the people that around me recognize that it was something that I did, you know, as, as a young person. I mean, I, I have to share with you, I mean, I entered the service I was just in my late teens, and I actually volunteered uh, for the draft, the Vietnam draft, with a close friend of mine. Uh, we were promised when we volunteered that we'd stay together, we'd serve together, et cetera. Instead, uh, he went one place for training. I went to an entirely different location. Uh, he never made it out. So uh, so I'm in many respects, I'm living my life uh, not just with passion and with meaning for myself, but also for the many brothers and sisters who uh, weren't so fortunate as I am. So that, that, that really drives a lot of, of my work. Um, in the service, uh, I had a variety of jobs, but my primary responsibility, mainly because of my testing and the fact that I was given really a blessing in, in many respects uh, by being trained to work in the uh, psychology mental health area. Now, this is before we had anything called PTSD. We didn't even we didn't even call it battle fatigue. I mean, it was basically man up and shut up. Get on with it. Right to that thing. And uh, but I got a chance to work with some incredible uh, psychiatrists, psychologists, uh, clinical social workers, um, primarily with veterans, obviously, uh, who were obviously undergoing uh, uh, the changes of being serving in a, in a war zone, but also uh, with dependents, uh, members, uh, family members of those who were, were serving. And so that was a really an eye opener for me because I never saw myself at that point moving into the mental health arena. And because I worked with some people like, uh, you know, besides being overseas, uh, I worked stateside as well, but primarily my, my time that was probably the most meaning my milestone for me was my uh, experience working with veterans in Heidelberg, Germany, what was West Germany at that time. And I worked with a, a very uh, profound, in my way, mentor psychiatrist by the name of Dr. Alan Jong, who was the husband of Erica Jong, if you know the, the author, Erica Jong. She wrote a book yes. called Fear of Flying. And uh, so he, he made a major mark on my thinking. Uh, he was a neo-Freudian. And, and the mark was mainly because uh, I, would, I was really less interested in the whole Freudian notion of human behavior, human motivation. And so the reason that was a meaning milestone in many ways is that that drew me back to a book I had read when I was in high school by Viktor Frankl called Man's Search for Meaning. And so that became kind of a starting point, if you will, moving me in the direction of there's gotta be something more existentialism, existential philosophy, humanistic psychology. These all became part of my, 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 my toolkit, if you will, over time. And that kind of led me uh, into the mental health arena when I got out of the service. So I started working with uh, primarily uh, schizophrenics and, you know, uh, the criminal, the so-called criminally insane uh, folks. And that experience brought me to the next level because I got frustrated with the political system, the lack of support for mental health services. So I started studying the politics of mental health. And that's what got me into the middle, the political science arena. So I was kind right. of a, a zigzag approach, but there was some actually some coherence in the path. Well, it does sound something like a labyrinth. It, it is definitely elaborate. And, uh, and as you know, you know, from looking at prisoners of our thoughts and, and, you know, we've wrote another book called the Opal way, which is referenced in prisoners of our thoughts. 
the idea of a labyrinth is different than a maze because it really is an opportunity to one get in touch with yourself to slow down to be mindful to kind of to, to kind of connect with what we call your true nature your core essence and so getting into that center of that labyrinth and then coming out coming out kind of refreshed renewed re-energized uh, was an important part. And so a large part of my labyrinth of meaning has taken me back into the labyrinth, out of the labyrinth, back into the labyrinth, and so forth. And we all go through that, but whether we're conscious of it or not is, is the challenge. Many of us yeah. live our lives on autopilot. Well, and we're going to certainly get into the intention of meaning and stuff. But um, sort of something I wanted to share, which obviously resonated for me in reading Man's Search for Meaning in particular, but has a link into, I would say, Vietnam and, and what you did. Um, I, I So I, I interviewed 130 veterans of the Second World War for mm -hmm. my film and book. I know that, yeah. And a lot of them were prisoners of the Japanese. Mm -hmm. And and so for never having served, never having been a prisoner or you know mistreated in any way, I, I think back to all those conversations with which with them who suffered such incredible things such as Viktor Frankl and his family and you know 600 million Jews and so on experience uh, and how that frames your life and it participates in you know giving you perspective and, and also can you know wire your brain differently definitely I I, I was um when I think of the idea of searching for meaning, when you talk to somebody who's young, who's sort of starting out, they don't have a, enough experiences yet. Maybe they don't have the wisdom, they, they haven't tried enough stuff. And my observation has been, more often than not, that the people who are on this trip, who, let's say, believe in the ideas of, of how meaning is what it's all about, have typically had a near-death experience or some big trauma that opens their eyes and then they become a leader of the idea. In your book, you say you don't need to have a, a, you know, a harsh experience to do it, but it's been my observation that it's, it seems to be the biggest eye-opener of perspective, of, of seeking a deeper thing than just having another you know, big swank car or house or whatever material object. As a as a way to to really open the door to meaningfulness. No, no, I I agree with you. I think the reason that we try to write challenges in life along a continuum is that a lot of people, and as you point out, especially even young people uh, who don't have a lot of experience, or maybe they haven't gone through a major trauma. Although you know, the last couple of years have kind of opened up a lot of people's eyes having to deal with COVID and you know, all the restrictions around that and the fear factor and so forth. But, you know, there's a continuum of challenge in life and what we call like the mini meanings to the big meaning milestones. Yeah, if you go through a major traumatic experience, ideally, and I have many people I've worked with, I have clients, I've had uh, colleagues, uh, friends, neighbors, family members who've had major, uh, you know, tragedies in their life. At the same time, they didn't gain insight into what that tragedy, what those tragedies meant to them in terms of being able to open up and give them maybe a light towards a path to meaning. So not everybody does that. Whereas there are other people who maybe have had a less challenging situation. Let's just say it's a, a teenager 
who doesn't get invited to the senior prom or doesn't make an athletic team or doesn't get the grades they wanted to get into a university uh, that they want to get into, many of the younger people have insights into those experiences that allow them to move along the path to meaning. So it really depends on the person and, and whether that person, number one, is conscious enough, all right? Uh, and that's an important element in terms of like it's, you know, we, we say in the in the book, you know, it's more important to be aware than it is to be smart. You know, many of us have multiple degrees. We have all these job responsibilities and everything else. We're smart as hell. At the same time, we're not aware of how we affect other people, how we communicate, which is part of what you're writing about. Uh, how do you engage people in meaningful ways so that, in fact, you resonate with them? And so the idea is behind the meaning definition that we provided in our writing is meaning really kind of comes down to the notion of to what extent can we connect to our true nature, our core essence? What does that mean? When I was younger, we had classes, we had sessions on value clarification, for example. You know, we had encounter groups. You know, we don't have a lot of that now. And in fact, we've dumbed down the educational system in so many places around the world. Uh, we're studying things that really should be helping people examine their life at an early stage rather than waiting until they're in their 40s or beyond and have a crisis or they talk about a bucket list, you know, or something like that. And I think that it's awareness that has to be, and that's really heightened awareness is really what meditation is all about. That's ultimately where the word mindfulness is really another word for meditation to a lot of people. It's just, it was more palatable. When, when, when I used to do, you know, tell people learn how to meditate, meditation to a lot of people was a form of religion. And so they didn't want to go there. So when you say you're going to have mindfulness training, that's more palatable to a lot of people. But the idea is gaining insight. And if we don't gain insight, then we're not going to grow. And again, within Prisoners of Our Thoughts, we talk about this idea about existential digging. And one of the key elements of this whole notion of existential digging is the fact that you can, you can change without growing, but you can't grow without changing. So a lot of us, we change relationships, we change jobs, we change where we live. But we're still 25 years later, we're still struggling with the same issues because we haven't not just learned from our experiences, but we haven't developed an action plan. Of what are we going to do about the learning that we now have this new experience? Is it going to open up new doors, new windows, to opportunities, or are we going to just shut it down and then go on to another relationship, you know, go on, move someplace else and hope that life will get better? No, we have to take personal responsibility. This was a big part of Victor Frankl's work is the ability to assume personal and then collective responsibility for our actions. In other words, life isn't, you know, is, we're, we're not basically uh, sitting back and letting meaning come to us. You know, we're basically mm -hmm. being asked by life to respond to life's call. And that's what you and I are trying to do. And that's what we're trying to help other people understand that they have that personal responsibility. And, you know, sure, there's some systemic issues that are struggles for a lot of people that maybe aren't as fortunate, but for everything that's being said now is stopping people from growing and learning. I can tell you that as I grew up and learned, I come up with immigrant family, uh, you know, people made fun of my last name. They didn't understand my religion. They didn't understand how we ate, what we ate. You know, the smells in my in the house when I was growing up were obviously very different than, than the typical Anglo-Saxon type of thing. And my father went through a lot of, of, of his own traumas as he was. And he was, everybody in my family goes going back many, many generations have served in the military. You know, my father served in World War II in Germany. 
I mean, he was, I, I didn't learn this until after he passed, that he volunteered for battle patrols to go behind enemy lines with a small group of 11 men to find out what the Nazis were doing. I mean, it's like, he never shared those stories with me, you know? And so that wasn't part of his generation. And I'm sure the same thing with you. You had to dig to find out your family's history in terms of the horrors and, and actually the bravery that these men, how they sustain themselves under those circumstances. No doubt. And and many times, because I hadn't served, because I wasn't there, sometimes I didn't merit the discussion. And and it, you know, you need to find ways into those stories exactly. because a lot of them went to the graves secretly. Right. So there's a lot of things you just said, Alex, which are very interesting. I wanted to um ask you, and I'm wondering if it's linked. The the photograph you have on the cover of your book for people who are listening, they won't know it, but it it has a, a bunch of planks of dark wood and yes. a plant which i'm i'm no botanist so i have no idea yes. what plant it is you know, but... I, I didn't know i didn't know either there it is right there and um you know i asked people because some people said is that a drug and i just assumed i mean i didn't really care all the, the all, all i cared about was the fact that it was plant was growing through all the adversity of the planks of wood and that was what i saw but just to get a little story the first edition of this book was a different cover and actually, I had more problem with that cover. The first edition had two uh, shabby, uh, silhouettes of two people on a bridge. And then it looked like it was an ice lake. And people would email me or call and they would say, are those people going to commit suicide? Are they going to jump off the bridge? Yeah. So I went to the publisher and said, look, we got to find a different way I mean, than, than having these people looking like they're ready to kill themselves. So yeah, so I don't know. I, I know we've asked that. Some people have told me different things. And it's it's not a drug as far as I know. You know, it's not supposed to be, but if it is, if that's if that's anybody's mind, um, you know, as long as they get the book and read the book and get the message of the book, you know, they can make up whatever plant they think it is. Well, but where are the plants? Yeah. Where are the plants going through the wood? And, and I was thinking about uh, being reconnected with nature. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and certainly, uh, I'm sure you're aware of the reinterest, fortunately, I'd say in psychedelics for dealing with things like PTSD, mm -hmm. uh, you know, doing some proper tripping on magic mushrooms are guided and assisted uh, to get through some of those wirings that are, that need to be rewired. That's true. So that's a, that's a good plant, <laughs> I think, yeah. in my mind. Yeah. Um, so you, you were just talking about education just now and how it's changed. And you talked about dummying down. So uh, the narrative in my mind at some level is we got so many people, so many highfalutin degrees that they possibly are more cognitively loaded with so much information uh, that it's made them somehow stupid in some way or blind in mm -hmm. other ways. And I'm, you know, I, I, I wonder if we shouldn't be starting with the teachers to be to know how to be more mindful and and more present and because it feels for me that teachers are not aware of themselves you use the word aware yes. be aware and if you're not aware then it's very difficult to transmit yes I, I i totally agree with you that the teachers need to be part of the intervention i think that the intervention needs to happen at multiple levels now again given my perspective and in terms of my background I have a, I've covered probably the entire political spectrum in my life. I was part of the counterculture in my younger days when I got out of, out of the military, 
became part of the anti-war movement. Uh, I was became uh, I participated in a group in the states called Students for a Democratic Society (SDS). So I have a very leftist orientation in my younger years. Interestingly enough, as I'm older now and I've had these years of experience, these decades later, I'm still part of the counterculture because I'm challenging a system that is censoring people, that is so obsessed with political correctness and things like that that it's not allowing schools from literally from kindergarten all the way through university levels to be the academies that the ancient that Plato and the other Greeks wanted it to be where we continuously if we, <clears throat> if we look at the Socratic method we should be challenging assumptions all the time I mean we shouldn't say that somebody owns science because science cannot be owned it's something that should be challenged always looking for new discoveries creating new hypotheses etc and because I challenge these things, you know, I become you know, conspiracy theorist, I'm divergent or whatever you call it. So I totally agree with you. But I think it's students need to be changed, partly not just from the school system. Obviously, parenting is an issue when they, when they even enter 100%. school. Yeah. Uh, kids need to be allowed to uh, explore things in a creative way that uh, challenges their thinking. Teachers, as you said, definitely need it. School administrators, education administrators need help. They need intervention big time. And the whole political system and the way education is funded, which includes the unions, the unionization of teachers has been part of a big problem. And so unions in their early days, you know, in the history of unions, you know, had meaning. Now they're basically, as you read Prisons of Our Thoughts, they're basically vessels towards influence and power and money. And how do you get, you know, and so kind of students and educational mission kind of gets lost in that shuffle. And we've been, I've even seen that over the last two and a half years during the pandemic is that a lot of the things, I mean, we already know this, and I'm sure you've heard this from where you are, you know, students have been really given a rotten deal in all levels of education with online learning, uh, you know, basically the, the whole, even the virtual space you and I are in right now is not the kind of teaching that I would want. This should, this should be supplementary. It should not be a primary thing to get a degree. I know so many people that feel totally like they got the worst education possible, including university degrees, because they were done online and exactly. they didn't feel engaged. They didn't feel that the kind of communication that's necessary, the kind of exploration that we went through um, is allowed today. <clears throat> and then on top of that, you put this culture that's basically telling people what to say. I mean, I grew up as a Greek, basically challenged to think critically and creatively but today we have educational systems that aren't teaching people how to think they're teaching them what to think and that is a major and i think a disaster for the educational system and so people in the united states and canada I mean, eventually you know we're going to be dealing with people from china and other countries they're going to be so far ahead of us that we're kind of you know we're worried about what gender people can identify with at a, at a grade school level when they're learning everything from science, and math, and engineering, and you know, and writing. I mean, look at the writing skills of young kids today compared mm -hmm. to what you know. And so, I think that that's it's it's a multi-level analysis that has to be done in order to reform education in a way that is more than just you can't we can't point blame at just teachers or just students or just we got to do we got to do it in, in, you know the whole system needs an overhaul, and, that, and that's my feeling. <laughs> and of course, I get in trouble for saying that. Hi, my name is Sarah, and I want to tell you about my podcast called 
Can I offer you some feedback? I'm a business consultant and executive coach with over 20 years experience in change management, leadership development, and naturally providing feedback to high performers. My podcast is for those of you who have a complicated relationship with feedback, whether giving, receiving, avoiding, or seeking. Feedback is essential for our development. In each episode, you'll hear from real people across industries with their ideas, perspectives, and best practices on feedback. I'll also be sharing business bites with you, simple explanations of organizational tools, management techniques, and leadership philosophies that will help you and your businesses thrive. You can listen to Can I Offer You Some Feedback on your favorite podcast app or learn more at evergreenpodcasts.com. Well, I agree with you and, and so be it should I get in trouble for agreeing with you because this is what I'm trying to do is find ways for us to re-engage with meaningful, critical conversation. And if, if, if we're not, if we're just told what to think, then I'm, I'm thinking, well, artificial intelligence is going to exactly. whip our butts in, in two seconds, because what makes us different right. is our ability to create, to intuit and to feel. And, and if we're not allowed to do those things, of course, there's another element of feeling in there. I'm wondering Alex, to what extent this is part of your new book, which I, I read you are writing about public administration and the search for meaning, rediscovering the soul of government. Is well, that in there? It's what's it, it is a major part. That's a major uh, message that I want to see come out of this book. But it, it builds upon the previous writing that I've done, not only with Elaine, with the books that you, you mentioned, but also, you know, I write for Psychology Today and I write, you know, other places as well in the public sector and so forth. But I think it is an important point relative to this podcast and the work that you're doing. <clears throat> you know, you mentioned that logos is a Greek word. Now, logos is traditionally looked at as meaning in English, reason, uh, meaning, uh, rationale, whatever. But it, as as we said and stated this in our, in our book, that the logos has ancient, you know, pre-Socratic uh, interpretations and definitions. And it actually has spiritual uh, implications. And so when you look at the word logos, which in, in the Christian theology, logos is the word, which is the word of God in the Bible and so forth. But if you look at the logos back in the, in the days of pre-Socratics, it, it really comes down to soul, spirit, which is the essence of meaning, which is what I'm talking about, the core essence. What's our, what's our core essence as human beings? Our core essence, our true nature is really grounded in spirit and soul. And so when you look at the word dialogue, okay, which is obviously something that you have here, when you think about uh, dialogos or dialogos, or I don't know how you're pronouncing it, but it's actually two Greek words. And, and dia or dia is, is passing through. So the idea is that when you have an authentic dialogue, and that's dialogue itself is rooted in the word logos, and the logos is the root word of logotherapy, Dr. Fonkel's. We're actually talking about connecting people, not just so they come up with a common understanding of something, they're resolving an issue, a problem, whatever, but dialogos, the true dialogue, is about passing through the members of this conversation on a spiritual plane. So we're connecting not just cognitively about understanding the issue, we're connecting on a spiritual plane. And so when you when you have an authentic dialogue taking place, and I've done this all over the world where I could not even speak the same language as the people in the room with me, but we resonated with each other. It gets down to a quantum level. We were able to connect. We could feel each other's energy. 
And true dialogue is like that. So if you have a dialogue, when you were working, say, at L'Oreal, uh, and you're having a meeting, and everybody's really open, and they're transparent, and they're having a really great conversation, a meaningful conversation, as you would say it, and then somebody they don't like sticks their head in the door in the room. What happens typically? What typically happens, the energy in the room takes a dive. All of a sudden, they want to clam up. They want to shut up. So what happens then is that do true dialogue is something which authentic dialogue is something that really requires an understanding of how to elevate the human spirit. And I think that's what you are trying to do. That's what I'm trying to do. Because it's not just learning about it. Because you're right. If that's the case, then we just use AI, right? Because we can program computers to know facts and make connections. But there's something that's deeper than that that drives us as human beings. And that's why we have to be able to control the machines and the technology before they control us. And unfortunately, we're moving in the direction of transhumanism, of all the things that are happening with mRNA. And those are scary things. I mean, and I'm telling you this as somebody who's got experience in this. I mean, I, I'm actually the uh, IBM, and I know I'm going on here and on here. IBM uh, credited me as being the inventor of the uh, electronic visiting professor, because when I was teaching full time, uh, I was in a university in the states, University of Maine. Uh, we were in. I was in the University of Maine, which is in north central Maine, north of Bangor. Yeah. North of Bangor, in Orno, the town of Orno. And I was trying to get students to feel that their education in the University of Maine would be just as good and just as qualified and just as credentialized as somebody getting it, say, in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And they're at MIT, Harvard, whatever. So we didn't have the resources that you would have, say, in Boston, in Washington, D.C., New York. But what we did have is we had some technology that we could use. So back then, this, this goes back to like the late 1980s. I was able to get faculty from around the world to respond to questions from my students in my class at 300 baud. There was no internet, there was no web then. And I would take the questions from the students, I email them to these professors. They could be in London, they could be in Paris, they could be wherever, and across the States, Canada. And then when we had our class, I had these giant, this giant you know, projector, and then we'd connect at 300 baud with the faculty answering the question from one of these other countries. So it turned out that that got written up by IBM as an innovation in academic computing. And then it turned out that they said, well, this is, we're gonna call this the electronic visiting professor. So the World Future Society wrote it, wrote that story up. At the, this was back in, in, in the late, late 80s, 86 or so, something like that, 85, 86. And so the idea here is that it was not just the technology but it was the fact that I elevated the human spirit of these students who were so amazed. And again, all you saw was the text on a screen, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. It wasn't like now, now we can do what we're doing with Zoom and so forth. But they felt connected in a meaningful way and it elevated their spirit because they felt like, you know what, I'm in, I'm in this rural part of Maine and I'm getting a chance to listen to a faculty member from anywhere in the world. And this is way before the technology we have today. Sure. But I, but I remember telling people, I said, but we have to make sure that we're controlling that technology not the technology controlling us. So now, years later, we have people that can't get off their smartphones. We have people that are can't get disconnected. I mean, to disconnect somebody, it's like you take a teenager and you, you take away their, their cell phones. I mean, they feel like they got to keep on texting people. They got, And it's like, I mean, they're addicted. And so the idea here is, is that we have to be careful that people don't lose their humanity because that's exactly the direction that this whole transhumanism trend is going is that you know eventually we just inject people we can tell them what to think how to think we're always 
you know, you can get your Google glasses and you can, you know, you're always online, you know, you're always, you're in the metaverse now and there's not, well, I don't want to live in the metaverse. I'm going to live with people who are talking face to face. That's why I love going to cafes where we actually have a coffee and we talk to each other. And we have and so we many kids. smell each other. And we, yeah, and we smell feel each other. Each we touch each other. I mean, it's like, that's the part that is concerning to me. And this is what I say when in terms of trying to help the future of humanity is I don't want to see the demonization accelerate to the point where all of a sudden it's, we can't turn turn back. We get, we're, we're stuck. We pass the point of no return. Yeah. Am I off? I'm probably off target here with your, your no, no, no. I love it. Hey, listen. Okay. No, 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 Alex. I, I, I roll. I roll okay. with stuff. Here. Okay. Um, but you talk about the three things that um, uh, we're we're struggling with: addiction, aggression, and I can't remember the third. But the topic I wanted to talk about in relation Depre to depression, addiction, oh, depression. Right. Yeah. Because you just talked about addiction, yeah. There's like this aggressiveness. Uh, well, we've right. seen a few wars breaking out. The dictatorships are happening. Right. The division between populations within a country, yep. and um, and you talk about this crisis of meaning, and and I feel like this is a topic that I mean I certainly I've invested in. I I hear it more and more because that's my filter, right. but I would love for you to try to describe how this crisis of meaning, which maybe started in 2007 per your note, but what he says identified as, but I feel like it's really started a long time ago, this crisis of meaning in, in that we, we, we stopped needing to worry about food and shelter so much. And now we've gone into a more, there's a liberation that happened in the sixties. Then we had Christopher Lash writing about the culture of narcissism in the 1970s. So Narcissism ain't new yeah. Oh, yeah. today. Egos have always existed. And I'm just wondering, how do you describe the crisis of meaning as it is today? And, and how do we get here? And, and maybe, you know, what is the biggest thing we need to be thinking about going forward to save humanity? Yeah. Well, I mean, the crisis of meaning, as you said, is it's longstanding. It, it goes back to antiquity. I mean, Plato, uh, you know, is quoted as saying, man, a being in search of meaning. So, I mean, we're not talking about anything new. I think what's changed is the, you know, as uh, Tom Friedman wrote a book called uh, The World is Flat. And I think that the technology, the interconnectedness between people, the fact that we can get instantaneous, not just uh, information, but instantaneous gratification from things uh, in the 21st century has accelerated uh, the movements towards some of the things that you mentioned, that what Franco referred to as a mass neurotic triad, uh, I, I started calling it the psychological axis of evil, because basically depression, addiction, and aggression are three things that have plagued us. I mean, he wrote about it after World War II, but you could have written about that many, many, many centuries, millennia before. I mean, we, people were always pursuing power, uh, wealth, uh, there was always greed, and so forth. But I think what's changed is the fact that the world is smaller, it's more interconnected because of technology, the ability to travel from place to place, even virtually like we're doing right now. I mean, when I grew up, you know, there was the six o'clock or the nine o'clock news, whatever it was. I listened to Walter Cronkite or one person and that was the news of the day and that was it. Now we're bombarded 24 seven. So the issue is that our compass that guides us towards meaning uh, is being, uh, 
I guess it's being remagnetized so that we're we have a tendency more now than ever to be sucked into moving the compass towards pleasure or towards power, which includes money, as we wrote it in Prisoners of Our Thoughts. And so we're all of a sudden we got more gimmicks, we have more obsession. We're, you know, we're living in a world where in many cases, you know, we have I'm a supporter of capitalism, but I'm not supportive of capitalism on steroids. You know, I mean, I believe that people should be motivated to achieve their highest potential and they should be able to, to uh, you know, see themselves follow some path where they're, they feel fulfilled, where they find joy and meaning in it. Uh, but at the same time, I think we've gotten so much greed and, and it's so much easier for people to uh, separate uh, and divide people based on income levels, different status and so forth. And I think now, you know, there's a lot of peer pressure and so forth that's driving people away from the core values that Viktor Frankl wrote about. And they go back all the way back to the ancients, the sources of meaning. The sources of meaning include the three things uh, we, we mentioned in the book that come out of Frankl's work are, you know, uh, <clears throat> they're all about actualizing values. Again, what are the core values? The core values of us are, some of them are creative. You know, we need to feel that we're creative. Well, if we're not allowed to be creative, and we're being referred to as one of the advisors to the World Economic Forum called about the emergence of the useless class. Well, I don't think he's talking about himself being part of that. He's going to be living kind of in Hunger Games. He'll be in the castle. But when you have a, when you even reference a useless class, is that a direction we should be going towards? Are you going to just give people, you know, universal basic income and not give them any hope that they can do anything with their lives, with themselves? Other than drugs, you know, alcohol. Soma. You know, exactly. Soma, what's the brave new world? Exactly. Thank you for you know, mentioning that, bringing that up. So we've got that issue. You know, we've got more and more aggression. I mean, like you said, I mean, you know, I served in the military many, many, many years ago. You know, I thought by the time we're in the 21st century, we'd be living like the cartoon, uh, the Jetsons. We'd all be in peace. We'd be living, you know, in, in, in ways where we got along. And instead, in many ways, we've regressed. I mean, we have things happening now that are worse off than, than maybe 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago. I mean, it's like, you know, and it's more dangerous because, you know, we're, it's, we've got some, some people who I would not consider to be good, capable leaders on the political, in, in the political realm uh, who are more driven by the will to power and the will to, to money than they are about the will to power. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. And uh, and so we have that as an issue. And then we, we see increases in addiction behaviors and increase in, in depression. The last Suicide. two years plus have caused us to reflect. And so as the ancient Greeks said, you know, the unexamined life is not worth living. So the issue for us is how are we going to get people, like you said, students, teachers, school administrators, politicians to examine their lives in ways that are Will allow us to bring peace and, and some some a better state at least of harmony, if not total peace, so that we don't blow each other up and kill each other. And you know we have values right now that I think are you know, we've lost our moral compass in a lot of ways, and that compass is about meaning, and and that's where the crisis comes in. But it's it, the, the crisis has been there, but it hasn't been as as obvious because now we can see things, we can watch things in real time that are really unsettling and um, you know and and then at the same time we're watching things we're not even sure if they're true or not so we have fake news and we have misinformation and, you know what I mean I mean when I was growing up we didn't have that I went to the library I did my studies I did my I had a job you know uh, you know you do your normal stuff and then you hope that you're going to get into a university and you're going to study more and you're going to get you know 
get a family or whatever. And now, you know, we got we have young kids that don't even know if the world's going to be around in 10 years. Yeah, I think there is a I, I haven't seen any material to, to back up what I'm about to say, but I, I get the impression that while there's a lot of new, I mean, so much information, overload of information, fear is a, a driving element of the narrative. And it, what's interesting for me, Alex, at some level, so I've observed this me first that you talk about, the me first way of living we talk about in Prisoners of Our Thoughts. And part of that for me comes down to parents who only have one child or two children. It used to be 10 or 15 and you kind of forgot the names of a few of them along the way. A couple died and, you know, no big deal. Now it, there's a sort of a hyper attention to individuals, a hyper need to identify in some way that makes me stand out. And in this a hyper uh, knowledge, I would say hyper education, even if we're dummying down, lots of degrees and no community yeah. and no, 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 they, 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 I feel like they don't even have a compass. Yeah. Yeah, I, 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 I can see how you're saying that, because I also think that besides all the hyper stuff that you described, I think the other issue that we've had in these last, probably the, the last two most recent generations, and it's partly because of my generation being the baby boomers, were in large part at fault. We've created generations that have kind of assumed a sense of entitlement that we never took in my age. I always had the work ethic. I knew that I had to work. I knew I had to compete, you know, and still want to collaborate. But I knew that, you know, that I didn't have to get, you know, the gold star, the trophy, everything I was in. And we've reached a point now where we have so many people feel that doesn't entitled in terms of the results, what they get, but they feel entitled to be part of the decision-making process, even if they have no information or any experience in what it's about. So they're all experts because they've been on Wikipedia or they Google something and all of a sudden they say, well, I know best. So I'm, a, I'm now a 20 something year old who's telling you how you're supposed to, you know, live your life and what you're going to do. And they, or, or, you know, or run the university. Or run the university. And the many are vulnerable. I mean, I heard just the other day about the, the tomato soup or whatever in the London Art Museum. Uh, it was a Van Gogh painting. And they, you know, they oh, yeah. no, no respect for heritage, no respect for art. Um, it's like, you know, they say, well, it was an oil painting. So therefore, because we're climate change eco terrorists, we're going to activists, we, we don't think we should have oil paintings. I mean, it's like, where do these people come from? You know, I, I mean, I feel sometimes and I've said this many times in other places, I feel like I'm living in the twilight zone. How did this happen? How did the world become so inverted where we have these people that expect so much? And don't they realize that these expectations of entitlement are actually going to backfire? Because we are living in a time, and I, and I, I firmly believe this, even if this has gotten me also in, kind of in, in various situations where people kind of say, oh, he's a conspiracy theorist. He's divergent, but I feel in many ways it's kind of like the, the movie, the trilogy, The Hunger Games. We're dividing people in so many different ways through identity politics. And then we have these people that are kind of pulling the strings, living in a castle. They're gonna, we're all gonna be eating crickets and bugs, and everybody else is gonna be, you know, they're gonna be in the castle watching us on big screens while they're having a feast. And it's like, I know that's conspiracy, but the thing is, it's not a conspiracy when you hear these people literally saying things like we're going to create a useless class because we're going to become so reliant on AI and robotics. And I'm thinking, 
But where's the humanity in all that? You know, I mean, where how are people then going to feel that they are going to come and serve others when they have no purpose? You know, they have, you know, as again, as we said in Prisoners of Our Thoughts, and we say this also in another way, in our other book, The Opal Way, on meaning, you know, you know, where there's a will, there's a way, but where there's an aim, as Victor Frankl said, there's a will. And we say where there's a purpose, there's a will. So the idea is it's not just saying that where there's a will, there's a way. We've got to say, well, give people hope, give them some goal to achieve. And if we don't give them that, how are they going to be motivated? And so the meaning equation, because I don't, I don't know how much time we have here left. I want to make sure I get this in here. The meaning that we're focusing on and that we're writing about in this new book that I'm writing about, which is focused specifically, exclusively on politics and government and the administration of government. Because I do believe in good government as a political scientist. I believe that government you know, has, has a purpose, an important purpose, but I also don't want government to become totalitarian. I don't want it to become overreaching everything. But given, given the fact that we're looking at meaning, which is saying, okay, well, what is driving people to do good things or bad things? And what are the intrinsic motivations? Not just the extrinsic. It's not just about adding more money, getting a promotion, whatever. What, what's inside of people? And that's where the communication skills that, you know, the conversations that you and I are interested in, have. we have to get there. We have to do an inner dialogue with people so that they understand how do I communicate with myself so I can become my best self, all right? And that's a part that I think we're losing touch with that as we move people towards better living through chemistry, et cetera. Yeah, I, my sort of running theme is that people are attaching themselves to causes or identities with such vehemence because they don't actually have an attachment down into who they are at an inner level. And so they project onto this other mission, whether it's flying a Ukraine flag or or some other big cause, which by the way is horrible and sure, but the the issue is they're not doing the real work on themselves. That's right. And the thing is, we can, as, as Gandhi said, you know, I mean, be, you know, be the, basically, you know, be the peace that you want to see in the world. And, and you know, the idea is, is that, you know, instead of creating departments and ministries of peace, you know, we're, we, we've been focusing, first we focused with, with COVID on big pharma as an industry. Now we're focusing on the military industrial complex. We're, we're really fueling them. I mean, it's like, it, it's mind boggling. Like I said, I mean, as, as an army veteran, I'm thinking, I cannot believe this. As somebody whose entire family fought for generations in the military, hoping to find peace. And we're now fueling and we're trying to kind of, you know, stroke all these fires around the world. And you got to wonder sometimes, again, this is another conspiracy potentially, uh, are we doing this as a way to deflect from the real issues? You know, are we trying to get people on causes just because then they won't look at what they really need to look at? Yeah, and part so, of that looking so, is at ourselves. Yeah, there's certainly a lot of that. You mentioned this notion of where there's a will the way goes away and it's a question i really wanted to dig in with you which is the notion of free will so i'm sure you will know sam harris's work where he doesn't suggest he says that free will actually doesn't exist as a neuroscientist he he has his approach and and if there is no free will then it it feels like it puts into play or uh, might undermine this notion that we have a choice so I was love it. I would love for you to sort of navigate through free yes. will and freedom to choose my attitude to the shit right. that just went down. Yes. Well, I mean, if, if we look at free will conceptually, 
just like we would look at meaning in terms of and challenges uh, on a continuum, we have different levels of finding meaning. We have different challenges in our lives. Some of them to, to, to you or me might seem minor to another person, they're major. It's the same thing with free will. Obviously, there are going to be certain things that we can't do because of physical constraints. I mean, I've done a lot of work with incarcerated prisoners, you know, and, you know, prisoners who physically have been, their freedoms have been taken away from them. <clears throat> and they're now, I mean, I mean, literally people who are on death row who have serving life sentences, they still have free will in, within the context of the space that they're allowed within their life. So the, the most obviously one that you just mentioned is what Victor Franco was most well known for is the ultimate freedom to choose our attitude. So when I give you an example, and there's, there's one an example that I wrote about a little bit in Prisoners of Our Thoughts, you know, working with a, a bunch of incarcerated prisoners and the first exercise I did with them when I went in and, I'm, and I had to have a very select group of prisoners with guards and, you know, we had to be real careful about security and everything else. So I'm going in there, and I don't know if you ever saw it was, uh, the Green. I was a Green Mile. Anyways, the movie yes. with the great, friend, great film, and said so all these big, you know, incarcerated prisoners. And here I go in there, and the first exercise I asked them to do was list ten positive things that come from their incarceration. And like, you know, you know, the guards thought I was nuts. I mean, you know, these guys going to kill this guy, whatever. And but the issue is, is that they all have freedom of choice of how they want to perceive their incarceration. And so that's why I listed some of the things in the book that to some people, you know, well, I get a chance to work out a lot when I'm in prison. Other people say I get a chance to mentor younger prisoners so that they don't, when they get out, do the same thing again and come back and, and, and repeat their, their same, same uh, uh, crime that brought them here in the first place. So they get a chance to be a role model for their family, uh, you know, to when they're, they're talking to their kids during a visitor's day or whatever. The idea is, is that, even though their their freedom of choice and their you know has been vastly restricted because they're physically incarcerated and not not as much in, a, in an American or Canadian or European prison as say uh, Auschwitz or you know prisoner war in Japan and prisoner war in uh, in Germany, but they still had their freedom restricted. But even within that space, they have freedom of will in terms of how do they want to think about where they are today. All right. Are they going to get angry or are they going to choose that they're going to work towards helping others, including their fellow inmates, uh, being kind to the guards? Victor Franco was kind to his Nazi guards. He was he was criticized for that, you know, but he, he took the advantage of having a relationship with the Nazi guards as a way also to get supplies to help him when he the meager things he had to help his fellow prisoners. So the idea is that even within that incredible, horrific experience. He still had the ability, the freedom to choose, if nothing else, that ultimate freedom to choose his attitude. Now, did he have freedom to just walk away and take a walk outside the camp? Do prisoners that are in, uh, out, you know, in, a, in a federal penitentiary have a chance to do that? No, they may never even get parole hearing. But the thing is, you have that choice. And so to say that you don't have freedom of will Yes, there are constraints. There are degrees of freedom that we all have. In statistics, we call it degrees of freedom. We have the same thing in life. But to say that we don't have freedom of will, which, by the way, again, there's a, a consultant to uh, the World Economic Forum that says that freedom of will does not exist. But yet I guarantee you that he would never say that about himself because he has freedom mm -hmm. to choose who he works for, you know, to get it. He wants to get more money. 
you know, whatever. And so for somebody to say that to me, I mean, I'd love to debate them on this, but, you know, I have plenty of examples in my own life where I could choose one direction or another. That's the reason why people say, do you have regrets? You know, well, I mean, some things maybe, but for the most part, no. I mean, I, you know, I know that I have to take, make choices. I have the freedom to make the choice. I also have the, uh, the responsibility to suffer any consequences, negative or positive. So. Well, I, I certainly wish that I have free will, and I, but I also feel certain that I don't have the definitive answer whether I do or don't, because, you know, this notion that Sam Harris promoses, which is you are, you know, from a certain genetic stock in a certain town, options of, of education, those kinds of things, and then the wirings that have happened over generations, and, and we end up being given a, a certain set of cards and afterwards, you know, how you play your cards, how you can do, I, I, I hope that we have free will. But those, but I, those are externalities. Those are, ex, those are things that, okay, you're well, the, born, gene, the genetics are not so external. Well, but, but in one level they are, because the issue is what I'm trying to share. And again, going back to the logos, if you truly believe that we are not just comprised of, of uh, brain cell, you know, neurotic connections. Uh, we have muscles, we have tendons, we have a uh, skeletal system, circulatory system, but beyond that and beyond our capacity to have cognition that we are spiritual beings, Yeah. all right? Spiritual beings having a physical experience. If you believe that, and you believe that true authentic dialogue is about connecting on a spiritual plane, then there are things. I mean, there are things that you know when you get bored, all right? That's typically a manifestation. No, but if but if you do get bored, that's a manifestation of a lack of meaning. All right. You're you're if you look at we we have a fuel gauge in our book, and it's a meaning fuel gauge. When you start to lose your fuel, which is your meaning, all right, and you're no longer fulfilled to be the you know the fill side of the, of the thing, you have, you have you have a choice. What do I do about it? Do I stay in this terrible relationship? Do I stay in this job? Even if I go homeless, that's a choice. You have the freedom, you have the freedom to kill yourself. Basically, you know, I mean, there are, there are, I mean, so to say that you don't, and I'm not suggesting we do that, but I'm just saying is that this freedom to, you know, and where I see the issue is on a societal level is not so much on your genetic code, because then you can, then you're going to end up having a, say, a, 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 the rise of the third right, where you basically say, these are the people that we accept as being genetically the right folks. And well, the transhumanists and, and folks, they might be thinking about that. Yeah. And so, so the idea is, is that to what extent are we moving towards, <clears throat> there's another great book I, I, I do recommend, it's called The Psychology of Totalitarianism uh, by uh, Matthias Desmet, D-E-S-M-E-T. And he talks about how is it that we form these, almost a mass psychosis where we follow the leader, so to speak, that we allow another Hitler to, uh, to rise, or we allow a totalitarian regime to take to take over our lives. Like right now, you have a podcast. Right now, you're writing a book. Imagine if all of a sudden you were told, well, because of who you are, you cannot do that. You cannot get on the internet. We're going to freeze your bank account. And I think, we're not even going to let you have a bank account. Uh, you're going to now have to do what we say. And those are some of the things that we've started to see people experience around the world in the last two and a half years, yeah. is all of a sudden people who were never, they, they just took freedom for granted. And as somebody who's of Cretan heritage, I'm not just Greek, my family comes from Crete, you know, freedom or death, which is the Greek motto, means a lot to me and to, to, to my roots, my heritage. So to take away our freedom is not just our freedom to 
eat where you want to eat, to marry who you want to marry, to be with whoever you want to be with, to work whatever kind of work you want. But it's the freedom to think and to feel and to express our feelings, to express our thoughts. If we take that away from us, all right, that's crushing. That's kind of like I describe it in the story of Peter Pan, Tinkerbell. It's kind of like putting Tinkerbell in a box and closing the lid of the box. What happens? Her light goes out. Well, you and I both know you can look in somebody's eyes. And when they say the joke, the eyes are the windows of the soul, you can tell if somebody is enthusiastic, which also, by the word, an English word comes from the Greek, means, you know, manifesting the God or spirit within. You can tell if somebody, if people are bored, if people aren't, they don't have passion, they don't have enthusiasm, that's typically meaning that their lack of meaning is, is, is affecting them. And we need to help people realize that they have human potential that can still be achieved. And so when you take away freedom of, of will, you're basically dooming them you know, to a life without meaning. So a last area that I wanted to explore, Alex. So we've been talking about me first and and uh, the scale of meaning you were talking about just now. I get this feeling sometimes that people in their desire for meaning, because intellectually we kind of talk about it. Oh, I wish I had more meaningfulness. Oh, so this cause, I'm going to jump on this cause and that's going to give me meaning. So I have that sort of vein of meaningfulness. And then the second one is meaningfulness is, is doing anything to ingratiate me, ensure my legacy, my immortality, which can include making sure my children are taken care of to remember me in a sense. And so you've got the sort of the small version of meaning. You have the huge version of Ukraine, of, of global hunger, whatever, these big things out there. And, and, and I feel both of them aren't right. In, in, the, in the first one, it's too way out there. You're never going to get real concrete results. So you're, you're just destined for disappointment. And, 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 and furthermore, you really haven't focused on who you are as an individual. And then the other one, which is much more about me, and, and making me live on and, and everything, you know, I want to have a name of a wing of a hospital in my name. Feeling of meaning isn't good because it's not expansive. It's not the O of OPA. <laughs> yeah, no, I, and I, I understand where you're coming from. And, and I, first of all, I would say I agree that there's, again, a continuum of meaning from what we call the many meanings all the way to these big meaning milestones. Uh, I, I would disagree or push back a little bit on the idea of picking up a big cause and wanting to commit your life to doing that. It doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to achieve that goal. But if in the journey of trying to make the world a better place, whether it's through taking care of the you know, Mother Gaia, through climate change efforts, whether it's trying to bring peace to Ukraine and Russia, whether it's trying to, uh, to promote public health, those, those big macro type issues, people are committed to them. And if you're only looking at the result of what the outcome might be, then it's not, to me, you're not on the, you're not really manifesting the will to meaning. That's more of the will to pleasure or the will to power because you're trying to influence things that are really extrinsic. The will to meaning comes from within and, and it's, it's, an, it's clearly an intrinsic motivation. It's something that I do it because you need to. It's just something that I have to feel that I'm going to be. And, and it could be simple things. Being kind to others it doesn't have to be that I'm going to go launch a giant initiative because I'm a billionaire and I could be play Bill Gates and I'm going to do all of this stuff. 
uh, because to many people that's uh, that's kind of that's a kind of initiative that is more of an egotistical narcissistic version. And I would not put that into the meaning category as much as I put it into the pleasure and the the power category. Because mm -hmm. you know, right? And so the issue is to what are your motivations? If your if your motivation is intrinsically driven rather than external to yourself, and it's, and it's a funny balance because even when you're an author, you spend your whole time writing going inside yourself, mm -hmm. hoping that at the end you're gonna have a product that somebody outside of yourself is gonna be interested in reading about or reading it. And that your message will be heard, and um, and so I, I have a, a Greek fellow that uh, uh, was the president of the uh, Greek uh, Author Society who made us. He has a great quote. He said, it's, it's, "I'm going to paraphrase it." He said that writing in publishing is kind of like uh, do it trying to uh, have a conspiracy to uh, uh, bring yourself into the future. So it's like you're trying to cheat death by bringing yourself into the future by writing and hoping that when you're gone your works will live on, right? Mm. And so if it's just that, then that's not the, the, the true essence of what we're talking about. You know, the true essence has to come from, because there are many, you know this, I mean, there are many poets, authors, uh, you know, painters that pr probably do it just because they love doing it and they may never sell anything. People may never see it and maybe if they do, it's after they're gone. But that didn't make their life meaningless. They were. They had meaning. They found meaning in that experience. The same thing. Meaning exists at all times. And, and, and Franco said this to our very last breath, and we don't even know after a breath what happens. But so people ask me. He says, "Well, how can you say that all life has meaning?" I says, "Well, even an unborn who dies prematurely, or a young kid who dies in an accident or from a disease, they may not fulfill their purpose in life because they didn't get that opportunity. But their life still has meaning, and that, that and that meaning may mean nothing more than you know, how their parents deal with it, that that child's life me meant something. So they're going to dedicate their life to helping other children or to other causes. So the idea here is that meaning is something that's universal. And, and we just need to be more aware of where that's why I would say you don't really create meaning, as Franco would say, we discover meaning, we find it, but we have to, we're not going to find it if we don't look for it. So we have to, it's, it's an ongoing process. And that's the part that, you know, and so sometimes you're going to be up in those big meetings. Other times you're little meetings, but you got to have something along the way. Because if you don't, it's like, it's like, you know, the, you know, you're basically flatlining, you know, on a, on a uh, when you're in the hospital and you find out what happens when you flatline, you're dead, you know? So meaning has, it has its ups and downs. Sometimes you're just enthusiastic as hell. I'm on the right path. You know it, you feel it, you resonate with something. And other times you feel lost. Well, that's, that's, to, that's life. To your point, Alex, uh, you know, you, you mentioned the idea of being kind. What I think then, well, if I choose the the goodness of being kind, or that's my meaning, the, the next step is to understand why being kind is your thing for me. Because you have a choice. You can be grateful. You can be right. kind. You can be happy. You, you have, but you've chosen to be kind. Okay. Yeah. What is it? about being kind that resonates maybe at some deeper level within you spiritually we i mean who doesn't want to be kind really that's the problem and i feel like it's so easy for people to jump onto and i call this a, another type of cause you know be kind uh if you don't do the work as to why this is the thing that has meaning for you to make intention so you have to discover that 
link between being kind and me. Yeah, and and I would and I would say I agree with that. I think that for people who are at a level of consciousness in which they are driven to gain insight into those kinds of questions, absolutely. That's I mean, the ancient Greeks know thyself. The unexamined life is not worth living. Those were those. That's what I mean. We've been doing this for millennia. Not everybody is going to want to spend time. They can't go there. They can't spend time trying to figure out what drives me to be kind. But there are other people, and it could be cognitive, could be intellectual, that they don't want to go there. And for whatever reason, could be their circumstance, personal circumstances. But then you and I both know people who are kind all the time, and they probably never ask themselves, well, why am I kind? Well, I just am. It is what it is. You know, in Greek, we say, ine to ine. You know, it is what it is. And so the idea is, is that some of us are going to go, and we're going to be the deeper thinkers. We're going to take the deep dive and say, what drives me to be kind? And other people just do it. And the thing is, I guarantee you that if you look at statistically, if you look at people who are kind versus those who are mean or whatever, you'll probably find very different uh, manifestations of their state of well-being, their health, their physical health, their emotional health. So, I mean, but people who are always negative, I mean, we know that. I mean, you know, you end up releasing endorphins. You really start, you, you, it just, you feel good about yourself and about life. And so that might be just enough for a lot of people. They don't need to go the deep, you know, introspective, I got to take psychedelics to find out why is it that I want to be kind. And there are other people who just do it because they just want to do it. They just, you know, they love connecting. That, that's where the O and OPA is about. It's they just they love connecting meaningfully with others. That means connecting authentically with others. They're, other people aren't just a transaction to them. They, they they respect their human spirit, even if they don't say it. You can feel it. You know, when somebody you, you can feel. I, I have places I go to stores, cafes, and so forth. Where I just know that the people that work there are really, they're not just, you know, love coffee and love, they're not just foodies. They love to be, they love the experience of being around other people. And they love making other people feel good about them and about their life, you know. And they may not ask the question, why? Am I, am I just a good employee? No. I mean, there's something in them. And it's, and I, and I, and I don't think it's just genetic because. You know, I have six brothers and sisters, and I guarantee you we're as different as, as you can possibly be, all right? And they think I'm nuts for the work that I do. And so, you know, and some of them are materialistic as hell. Genetically, we're supposed to be all the same. No, we're not. Uh, so. so, Alex, really thank you for this. Um, I feel like we, we've ended on a, on a rather positive note. Yes. That uh, we can all have meaning in all aspects of our lives especially interesting for those of us and people who are listening who are working because prisoners of our thoughts is really designed for and has lots of really interesting examples by the way very personal as well because I, ultimately it's a personal and professional journey but how people in business could tackle gaining having more meaning in their lives uh, and so I congratulate you and, and Elaine for the writing. I love the the pre the forward by Kobe, um, and and the fact that I got to talk to you, who talked to Frankel, is uh, I feel like I'm just one step away from uh, one of the titans of our world, of our universe. Um, I, so, I'm glad you used the Titans reference. It's another Greek reference. <laughs> I I have been I have I I have a friend called George Bitsanis to name him who uh, just he he and I would have long philosophical conversations and he loaded me with a lot of Greek references so uh, hat tip to uh, gorgeous Georges I like to say um, so Alex uh, what would be ways that you would like how can people get your book 
and or connect with you what or follow your readings what the preferred uh things well i mean they can certainly uh find find me on on google they can find the books on uh any of their online or favorite you know favorite booksellers uh it's if it's not on shelf it's can be quickly ordered uh, i certainly can get it on all the online uh booksellers as well uh, just like your books um and then uh, they can find more information about me either through our website, which is globalmeaninginstitute.com, uh, as well as they can find me if they go to psychologytoday.com. Uh, I've been writing a column for a number of years now there. That a lot of the meaning articles could be found there. Um, and just uh, you know, if they get the book and read it, and they have any questions, there's an email at the back of the book and shoot an email off and be happy to respond. And your new book, when is that going to come out? Uh, it'll be in 2023. So. All right, good luck on that. Alex, thank you so it's a, much. It's a, work in, it's a work in progress. Of course it is, Alex. <laughs> like life, like life. <laughs> so, but I'm excited about it. Thank you very much, Alex. And thank you. Thank you for allowing me to, uh, to share and have this wonderful, meaningful conversation with you today. Love it. Thanks for having listened to this episode of the Minter Dialogue podcast. If you like the show, would like to support me, please consider a donation on patreon.com forward slash interdial. You can also subscribe on your favorite podcast service. And as ever, rating and reviews are the real currency for podcasts. You'll find the show notes with over 2,000 and more blog posts on interdial.com. Check out my documentary film and four books, including my last one, You Lead, How Being Yourself Makes You a Better Leader. And to finish, here's a song I wrote with Stephanie Singer, A Convinced Man.
woman I'm a convinced man Put me to the test I'm a convinced man I'm ready for an arrest I'm a convinced man In the arms of a woman Jim Stroud Podcast explores the discoveries and trends forming the future of our lives. Brain-to-brain communication, robot bosses, microchip implants for workers, and artificial intelligence replacing human workers are all happening now. If you want to know what's happening next, subscribe now to the Jim Stroud Podcast.